This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. wave after wave after wave by the federal government to ban the use of anything but malt, hops, water, and yeast. And they were uh, protecting the right of American brewers in the future without knowing it. If they didn't do what they did, we literally would have been no different than Germany. We would have, we'd be a Germany today. The craft movement in terms of any styles made with anything but malt, hops, water, and yeast would be illegal. You probably know the name Greg Casey. The guy who made all those fishbone diagrams I'm always talking about? This week on the show, Greg joins us to talk about something that predates his 30 years of experience at Anheuser-Busch, Stroh, and Coors, the story of how we narrowly avoided a Reinheitsgebot boat right here in the United States. What these guys did back then to defend our right today and throughout these past 130 years to, to brew with the materials of our choice is simply inspiring. This is an incredible story that you have to tell that, as you kind of point out in the article, just it's, it's, it's amazing that every brewer in the world doesn't know this story, you know? Well, we don't even. I mean, I, 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 don't, you know, I, I asked Bill Coors once before he passed if he was aware, you know, I start because I started this like back in 2007. Right. Get and Bill said, no, he had no idea. And I figured if Bill Coors. If he doesn't know. Like of our own history, nobody did. Why does the history of American lager begin in the 1840s? Well, it just begins with immigration. Uh, As you know, we're a nation, probably the most diversified nation on the planet. Different uh, groups of people have come to this country at different times, including this Canuck in the 80s. But back in the 18, um, you know, the first half of the uh, 19th century, it was German immigrants that came over here. And uh, when you look at Beard America before their arrival in the 1830s, 1840s, en masse that is, particularly the 1840s, uh, you know, we were basically a UK dominated uh, beer market, but it wasn't, you know, beer wasn't really big in the United States. I'm surprised how relatively insignificant prior to the arrival of Germans beer was within the overall alcoholic beverage category. 
yeah, we had porters, we had stouts, we had ales, we had pale ales, but they were, you know, they, they weren't, it, beer wasn't our national beverage, hard liquors were. And then these uh, Germans, mostly uh, as many, the same reason many other uh, folks have come here, is for the freedoms that uh, the United States provided, particularly the political freedoms and uh, freedom of speech that was being squashed in the 1840s in Germany with uh, their attempt to, to follow other countries to have true, vibrant democracies. Uh, long story short, the Prussians won the day. A lot of them decided to leave. A lot of them were trained brewers. A lot of them came at a time when lager um, was really um, accelerating. It had already been a fact of life in Bavaria, of course, for a long time. Um, but it was becoming more and more prominent across other parts of uh, Germany and Europe. So when they showed up here, I think it's fair to say that lager was first brewed for the Germans for them to drink. And it was clearly a all-malt uh, beverage in the 1840s right up to the 1870s, um, brewed for them until, as they say, in their, and I love it when I read them saying or telling a future president of the United States that you Americans, um, you, you know, you like a lighter beer, you know, ironically, because the legislators were typically trying to tell them not to make it. And they kept saying, well, you Americans, uh, you like it. We make it all malt beer and it just uh, most of it uh, comes back returned. And we have to they say, give us the, the lighter beer. And these, these are all in the transcripts in Library of Congress. So to your question, uh, we have lager solely because of the um, the German immigration to the United States. Uh, there is a little bit of lack of clarity exactly as to who brewed the first lager beer. But typically, most historians that I could tell um, indicate it came around 1840, 1841, 1842 with Reading, Pennsylvania and Frederick Lauer typically uh, being accredited with that. But um, that's kind of, you know, to me, a minor point because Lauer himself gave other people the credit. But I'll talk about all that in some of the uh, the books. So hopefully that answers the question. Cool. All right. So you just told me that um, that hard liquor was sort of uh, the the national drink of of the U.S. Talk about the shift from booze to beer that occurred in the late nineteenth century. Yeah, it's, and it's a, it's really a profound shift historically speaking, uh, because you know most Americans were familiar with prohibition. We know that uh, booze in general was all booze was shut down in nineteen nineteen, right, right up to nineteen thirty three. But in the preceding half century before that uh, milestone of prohibition, there was this enormous um, struggle in America uh, over whether alcohol should be allowed and what types of alcohol should be allowed. And the point that the uh, the German brewers were making was that lager beer was a wonderful alternative in terms of moderation compared to hard liquor. From what I see, clearly we had problems as a society. I can understand why the forces, particularly the, uh, um, you know, the prohibition groups were seeing the social ills of heavy drinking of liquor. Uh, the per capita numbers are stunning when you look back at it as to what it was. And here came this a little low, relatively, you know, as you know, the cold temperatures of lager allowed enough time for an alcoholic beverage to be made without spoiling that had a fairly small percentage of alcohol relative to every other category of alcoholic drink. So the, the brewers took great pride in pointing out that lager beer um, was a, 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 a clear alternative to moderation in society to help ameliorate, in addition to the benefit and the pleasure of drinking it, to the ills of so many of these higher alcohol products. And indeed, it's it's a it's a it's a hoot, John. When you look back in the the press of uh, the 1850s, 1860s, one of the biggest debates was: Can you even get drunk on beer? 
you know, it was at least the same alcohol as we have today. And even at the start of the Civil War, the uh, the Union allowed beer, unlimited use of lager in the in the field, in the belief it was not you couldn't get drunk on it. It's just <laughs> just it's just wild, you know, getting your head wrapped around these concepts. It must but have they, been an interesting time to live back then, huh? Yeah, you know, stand, you know, standing in a line, advancing into you know cannons and guns and all that. Yeah, crazy time. But uh, yeah, that so that was uh, a dynamic that uh, played out. And you look at the per capita numbers, it just plummeted. I mean, hard liquor from uh, and really not until uh, the paler, lighter adjunct lager beer, not the all malt beer of the 1840s, 50s and 60s. That was pretty much brewed for the German community. But once it started to hit you Americans again, uh, that's when it exploded. When the per capita numbers, as you know, America's population was hugely expanding then. But even beyond that, you know, with a per capita basis, with that larger base of people, it became you Americans. And you start to see the term national beverage uh, showing up in the press in the 18, late 1800s. And uh, to me, it's kind of tragic that uh, the brew, the lager brewers of America, I think, had proven their case that it was a beverage of moderation, that it was a good alternative, that you didn't have to shut down the alcoholic beverage industry as a whole category. But they lost, you know, they lost the battle, but ultimately won the war once Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, signed a declaration saying, "Hey, you can start to brew again." All right. Well, we're here to talk about a, a different battle. Uh, your recent Master Brewers technical technical quarterly paper is about the quote half century long assault on the industry between the 1870s and 1910s to impose an american reinheitsgebot who was behind that assault okay that's that and that is you know the the series of books that i envisioned that's the heart and soul of what it covers other authors have uh, covered you know like marine uh, ogles you know an ambitious brew she Wonderfully pointed out, yeah, hey, we've been using corn and rice for a long time. This is not a World War II-related uh, use of these materials. Um, but you're going to have to bear with me here, John, because I'm going to use an, an analogy that my son hates when I use it. <laughs> so, therefore, I will use it. Uh, it's with regards to the two fa- – it, it, to, to your question, it can be answered by uh, the second of the two most famous births in Reading, Pennsylvania. I just referenced Frederick Lauer, right? You know who the other one was? I don't. Taylor Swift. And, <laughs> and in her song, uh, one of her songs, I can't remember which one, she says, the players are going to play, 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 and the haters are going to hate, hate, hate. And in this analogy, the players are the, those immigrant German brewers that came here, uh, started to brew all malt, then switched to adjunct lager beer, uh, realizing that our peculiar American idiosyncrasies for uh, not sitting, you know, not sitting down and lingering over beer, but we were, you know, America was capitalism on hormones back then um and they, it was a quick beverage uh you often read german writers reporting it breaks their heart to see an american drink beer in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s uh, so quick they wanted a lighter beer but most importantly they wanted to be crystal clear in the glass when it was ice cold the first to figure that out were american brewers german american brewers and for decades that was our calling card but ironically to your first question to your original question the haters in this analogy were, and this is what stunned me over the last 13 years, virtually every single institution of power in the United States at the time. So here you have this uh, industry, mostly, you know, lager being German-Americans, being continuously attacked over those decades, trying to force them to stop making what turned out to be our national beverage, to have, a, you know, an American Ryan Heitzke boat. 
in essence. So you had the leading the, leading the charge when you start to look, well, I shouldn't say this, but I'll, at different levels, federal government uh, touched in the first quarter paper of, you know, sh- showing the actual bills in the Senate and the House of Representatives. If you read it, what does it say? Essentially, you know, an American Ryan Heisken boat, just malt hops, water, yeast. Um, and as they, to the House of Representatives version, when they said they included uh, vice beer in it, um, you know, you can't really make it without wheat. <laughs> And, you know, these legislators, but they were mostly Anglo-Saxon in their heritage and they were influenced by the paradigm. The only real beer, the only pure beer, the only unadulterated beer, the only genuine beer was an all malt beer brewed the Bavarian way. So you saw constant attacks by the federal government right up to 1912. Uh, I only discussed in the Q1 paper, the 1890 example, but there were uh, wave after wave after wave by the federal government to uh, ban the use of anything but malt, hops, water, and yeast. Uh, and it culminated in 1912 uh, when actually it was the the, uh, the, the brand new uh, food and drug uh, department in the government, United States Department of Agriculture, that their last recommendation was to have an American Ryan High School. And then the lawyers said, Congress hasn't given you that authority. Uh, thank God for lawyers. One of the rare examples of that. No disrespect to any <laughs> Lawyers who are listening, but it's because of that. But even uh, you know, even beyond that, the media, uh, the United States uh, media at the time, when uh, reports first came out in uh, 1877 in Milwaukee, a, re- a reporter just went into the Internal Revenue Office in the city, uh, and back then and still today, the government was collecting or requiring since 1862, when the beer tax paid for much of the Civil War expenses, put a dollar tax on beer, and in conjunction with that legislation, every brewer in the United States had to record. Every ounce of every material used to brew beer in their brewery, every brewery, no exceptions. And uh, this reporter just walked in, 1877, hey, give me the numbers. <laughs> you, you know, the, the articles you saw, I think these titles would give you a hint as to the um, paradigm or opinion of the press, because uh, it's comparable to what was uh, done in the next 30, 40 years, was the hand of fraud, crook, crooked brewers. And all they were talking about was uh, Philip. Um, you know, Frederick Miller and uh, Philip Best, whose who son-in-law, Fred Paps, you know, became the owner of Paps. But all these brewers in Milwaukee report the actual, the actual numbers and pounds of corn and rice that they were using in 1877 to uh, brew lager beer. So that's so that that kind of attitude within the American media, um, you know, it was their social media was the printed paper. Right. Uh, and they for all those decades, the overwhelming perspective of the press was we're getting shafted this is lousy beer you know and in terms of uh, critics of the style of beer that i was uh, so dedicated to they've been around a lot longer than you know modern generations of uh, critics uh, they were just under assault uh, in new york the state legislature in albany and in, in jefferson city and missouri um, they all took uh, shots at trying to force a a, a, a national Ryan Heisken vote in uh, the United States. Uh, the, you can imagine who was losing in this shift: barley growers and maltsters. As I talked about in the Q1 paper, you know, when they read into the transcripts in the Senate hearings, um, the letters from uh, the, uh, the 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 lobbyists to maltsters saying, "I'll agitate on your behalf to get Congress to pass these laws." Uh, it was fundamentally money that was driving a lot of this with the combination of personal opinions as to what is quality in a lager beer. 
Um, and it goes on and on. The medical community was against it. The prohibitionists used the fear in the public that the beer was adulterated through the use of corn and rice to fan um, this kind of legislation. And it just go, it just went on and on and on. And I'm like, you know, holy schmoles, this is it's amazing what these guys did in a environment where every institute, even the Supreme Court. Supreme Court agreed with the state of Missouri when they placed placed a ban on the use of corn and and uh, in lager beer, and it, this, the the suit was filed by Fred Pabst in Milwaukee because he was saying, "Hey, I I I, I want to pass my beer through Missouri." He couldn't even pass his beer through Missouri because it contained corn, and he lost. The Supreme Court agreed with the state of Missouri that they could ban any lager beer brewed with corn. So it's a fascinating um, period of history, and and you know, really, John, most of my uh, writing, uh, you know, that's taken place so far, just that Q1 being the first sort of snippet glimpse of it. Most of my uh, writing is focused on this, the societal debate. It's not a technical focus series of books. It's all about the, um, you know, their legacy, what they accomplished and why it matters today. If we, if we focus on this, this 1890 assault, just how close of a call was this? You know, I think truly, you know, I, my person, and we'll never know, right? But uh, in terms of an opinion on my part, I think if it wasn't for the brewers, because they were meeting in 1890, if you go back to the United States Brewers Association, that also happened to be the year they were meeting in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, for their annual meeting. But uh, if it wasn't for their uh, aggressive and passionate defense of the practice, uh, if, you, if you read some of those quotes from uh, Anton Schwartz and Dr. Francis Wyatt and uh, William Miles, um, they just lay it out there. You know, they're just saying, hey, we believe this makes a better beer. We believe this meets what our consumers are asking us to meet. It makes a more flavor, uh, more a different, lighter flavor. It allows a beer to stay, um, you know, uh, crystal clear when ice cold. Uh, when, you know, when Francis Wyatt later said, um, you know, beer is, um, you know, with the aesthetic as well as the Epicurean. You well, know, yeah, I, wanna, like, I mean, you, you talk about, I was going to ask you to, to sort of talk about that because you designate sort of this precise moment um, in which an American Reinheitsgebot was, was avoided. That, in, and that was the late, that was in 1899. After yeah, the, talk about that. Yeah, that, you know, the 1899, uh, if you look back in history, we had... One of the biggest issues in society in general wasn't just beer in the 1890s. It was uh, the safety of the food chain. Um, people were dying from, uh, and we, we needed uh, regulations and standards. Uh, the War of 1898 with Spain, you know, some soldiers got sick and died from contaminated meat canned in Chicago, for example. We didn't have an, an FDA. We didn't have food standards in the United States of America. So um, the, the, it was called the Pure Food Congress. Uh, and ultimately, it led to the formation in 1906 of the it wasn't called the FDA then it was just the FD. But their task assigned by Congress was to to establish standards for every type of food. You know, what uh, what could be made, what was quality, what was safe, what was dangerous, how it was prepared, how it was sold. Basically, the whole supply chain approach for the first time uh, in the American food and beverage industry. And beer was but one of the uh, many. Um, categories of, of beverages that was uh, uh, examined at this time. Um, the, the current definitions we have for whiskey and other things, all, you all trace back to that period of time. What is whiskey? Well, the government defined it. Uh, then they're trying to do the same with beer. In 1899 was uh, the summer where the representatives of the Pure Food Congress were holding hearings in both Chicago that summer and uh, in New York 
uh, to get input from the brewing industry, uh, from the malting and industry, the barley growers, private citizens, doctors, physicians, anybody that had an opinion on what beer should be, were invited to testify. And the bulk of it uh, boiled down to the uh, proponents of the use of all substitutes, the brewers, and the advocates, the other groups I just referenced. And so it was in conjunction uh, with those hearings in 1899 that uh, Dr. Francis Wyatt, and it's all published. I mean, it's just uh, if you if if you knew me 20 years ago, John, you'd say it's amazing I can use a computer. <laughs> I use, I used to I, I missed the revolution. I was so buried in in uh, making a genome uh, genomic library lottery yeast in the 80s and the marvels of yeast that I just didn't pay attention to modern technology. To to be honest, but uh, you know, Library of Congress, you can get all these uh, transcripts of these hearings, and you can go through it page by page and read what they had to say. You can hear the questions that the um, the representatives ask of the of the brewing industry representatives and read their replies. And it was in uh, that kind of a context where you know, doc, I believe when because it was it was clear that there was obviously a struggle between should we or shouldn't we from a federal government perspective. And I believe when. Um, you know, when 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 Dr. Wyatt said that uh, aesthetic as well as Epicurean properties of beer, that the importance of uh, malt of malt substitutes to deliver those to the consumers, I believe that's why at the end of it, Senator Mason, who chaired this, said, "Hey, uh, we believe that it was their recommendation then um, that the brewers should be allowed to use the materials of their choice." Then a few more years later, another round of attacks. Uh, came on the industry. So it was just uh, one of the milestones in the example of the federal government's effort to impose a American Rheinheitsgebot. All right. I want to talk about the role of North American barley. Um, as we've kind of talked about earlier, there was this myth that sort of permeated that adjunct beer was some sort of product of you know, wartime rationing or uh, means to decrease the cost of production or something like that. And, you know, we heard this for many years. I'm, I'm probably even guilty of like prolif- proliferating that myth in, in early, early in my career, right? And then, yeah. and then, you know, I think you mentioned as Maureen Ogle and some others have, have sort of put the, that to, to bed. So uh, there was a statement, I believe, from Wyatt's testimony um, that it, it's very difficult uh, to make brilliant beer from malts made in this country. And then Adolf Kluss goes on, um, as you point out, uh, to, to make a very precise and concise analysis of the differences between American and German brewing, where he really hits the nail on the head. It's, it's all about the barley, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the barley was, uh, uh, it, was it was really the barley, uh, but it was also driven by uh, the idiosyncrasy of the American lager beer drinker, the you Americans that just wanted a brighter, lighter, but most of all it had, because we only served it typically in glasses, right? In glass, in beer, in the United States. We didn't use stone mugs or, anything, or steins or anything like that. We, we were almost exclusively drinking beer out of glasses and having, uh, we take it for granted today, uh, of course, because it's 150 years later, that we, when we get that pour that uh, light lager beer or any lager beer, we expect it to be crystal clear. It's just assumed that, well, it's always been that way. Uh, but as I told my sons over my years of parenting, there's, you know, aside from your heartbeat and breathing, about everything else in life is learned. And the industry had to learn 
how to deliver to the consumers way back then in the 1800s to the American consumers specifically a beer which was crystal clear with ice cold, in addition to being lighter. And as you've uh, indicated from uh, some of those examples, uh, this you know the six-row barley European lagers are ex- exclusively, ex- probably still are today, but certainly were then two-row varieties, right? But everything typically growing here was a six-row variety and, and the higher uh, in protein content and, you know, classic chill haze that takes two baby, right? You know, the peptides and polyphenols, they give you chill haze first temporary, then permanent. Um, so yeah, by they needed to dilute it and they, and that's, you know, they needed, they didn't obviously understand the science behind in the, in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, uh, what was driving that haze. They just learned through trial and error. One of the ways, it was an important one, but it wasn't the only innovation in the United States industry, uh, that they could assure that the beer that they, the lager they were making stayed crystal clear but ice cold was that they substituted some of the extract with substitutes, malt extract driven extract, with uh, corn and rice based uh, substitutes. And if they brewed a beer with that, really, it was pretty much. Not much different than I spent my career for most of the brands. You know, it's in that 20, 40 percent extract of um, uh, from from uh, malt substitutes that played a critical role in helping them to assure those traits in the beer. If the use of adjunct is uniquely American, why does or maybe did I haven't really kept up with the ever changing definition? Uh, why does why has the the Brewers Association defined craft beer in a way that excluded adjunct brewers? Well, you know, they that's a that's a great question, John, because uh, I have a, a lot of passionate feelings about this. And and you know, in fairness to the Brewers Association, uh, you know, remember that craft versus crafty and you know debate um, over you know what defines a craft brewer several years back. Uh, you know, Chase Marty from uh, August Shell. He wrote in to point out to the Brewers Association that, hey, in terms of the criteria you've put here to define what constitutes a craft brewer, were met in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s by his predecessors. You know, that it's as traditional uh, uh, a beer at fitting these criteria as uh, the, the, the classic portfolio of craft beers. You know, Jace Marty, he let me go through the uh, ledgers, the logs, the brewing uh, logs from uh, the 19th century. Uh, where you you know they put down the form what they're brewing with that day the materials they were using and it was a wonderful moment for me personally John because I was able to tell Jace yeah cereline he didn't know what cereline is I said that's a pre gelatinized form of corn flakes that you could add directly to the mash tun you didn't require a cooker um, you know and he was like well that's cool I didn't know what that's what that was and here's a guy multi generational brewing right American brewer um, that like Bill Coors was not necessarily aware of his own heritage but he was aware of the fact that they were using corn and rice and um, you know I understand relative to um, you know there. I'm not naive to, to to assume there isn't a bugaboo within the craft industry relative to whether um, you know beer lager beer way made with adjuncts should be considered as as a, a real beer or even a craft beer. And I'm arguing in my my text that if you um, judge what they did in the, the first uh, what I consider to be the first revolution in beer in America, you know the lager brewing industry specifically the adjunct lager brewing. Uh, it, if you go to the criteria of what's used to uh, define a craft brewer, if, if you set aside your paradigms, you know, you can argue, and I do make the case that I believe that uh, adjunct lager beer was, was America's first uh, example of a craft beer in the context of 150 years ago. 
because I don't know what's going to, you know, what, what a, an IPA is going to look like at 150 years from now. But I know in the last 20, I've seen it go from um, a beer that my very first sample, I went, oh, my God, I got to chisel the hops off the top of my tongue and roof of my mouth to one that, uh, you know, that uh, the, the fruity, hazy IPAs, the juicy IPAs that are far more drinkable, the slighty mighty, the 100 calorie IPA. Could you imagine 20 years ago, 100 calorie IPA? Uh, and, you know, directionally, all those things within the flagship style of the craft industry are heading towards what August Bush so famously said when I first heard it in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, back in the 1980s, uh, drinkability, gentlemen, it's all about drinkability. And, um, you know, maybe it's called sessionability in the craft world. But um, I think it's important to, once the his history has been reviewed by um, consumers and professionals in the industry as well, you know, to view the uh, adjunct lager beer in the context of a 150-year-long journey uh, and what that might mean. And there's so many parallels, what's taking place in the uh, the second one. So, yeah, there's that, uh, that bugaboo about it. I understand that. I realize it's real. And it motivates me to, um, to share our history, albeit I'm one of the few morons in America that's screaming with passion about quarter rice, right? <laughs> but I'm saying it's so important what they their legacy. If they didn't do what they did, we literally would have been no different than Germany. We would have it, we'd be a Germany today. We are the craft movement in terms of any styles made with anything but malt hops, water, and yeast uh, would be illegal. Um, every drop of beer my son makes would be illegal because you know with fruit and wheat and uh, I mean it's a the irony is of course that their legacy was uh, generated by defending adjuncts of all things as mundane as boring as that it, uh, they are that's what uh, they were protecting and they were uh, protecting the right of American brewers in the future without knowing it um, to make to to use our energy, our excitement, our innovation, our passion for beer to make styles that um, like the light light adjunct lager beer went on to dominate the world. So too are craft brands. America's teaching the world again. It's a second revolution. And every time I you know I teach, I've taught in China, and I I see American beers in China. Our son lives second son in Japan. I see American craft beer, and I see American Japanese craft brewers and Chinese craft brewers. Everywhere, Italy, Greece, a couple of summers ago. And that's all been generated by the passion of the American brewer. It's uh, the craft brewers this time. It was the German-American adjunct lager brewers of the first revolution. So um, as you can tell, I got a fair bit of passion. And I welcome challenges to, you know, um, from, from a historical perspective, Should does this merit worthiness as being uh, celebrated as our history? And I profoundly uh, feel that it does and i think it's good for beer in general you know in time when you know there's a, a rome everybody loves loves a winner right everybody loves a fighter and what what these guys did back then to defend our right today and throughout these past 130 years to to brew with the materials of our choice is simply inspiring Wow, that's 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 a heck of a story. So I, I wonder, uh, I wonder if any of them did have the foresight. I wonder if any of them could imagine a future where beer might be, you know, drastically different. Absolutely, definitive answer of yes. There's a, uh, and, I, and again, I'll I'll be getting into uh, later, you know, books. But there's a gentleman. There's gentlemen I've designated should be considered as the patron patron state uh, patron saint 
of the craft brewers of America today. His name was uh, Ernst, and uh, pardon me, I, I understand, I saw from your background, your time with VLB, um, and I, I don't speak a word of German, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher. That's many. okay, mine's not great, that, the course was in English, so. <laughs> yeah, I can, I've, I've mastered Canadian English, I can really, <laughs> that one, but when it comes to German, but his name was Ernst Hentke, and um, have you ever heard of him? Uh, not other than from, um, from, from what you're gonna say. Yeah, he he was uh, he wrote the very first uh, brewing manual back in late 1890s on American brewing practices, the materials used, the processes, the design, and it was all centered on adjunct lager beer. And he wrote it, uh, it both malting and brewing. It's a I don't have a personal copy of it. I'd love to get. I think it's got to be one of the rarest pe- uh, pieces of Americana history for brewing. But he wrote this this manual. He wrote it in German. Germany, and he also in um, you know in 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 Milwaukee, uh, much like Siebel Institute and uh, you know the, the institute that uh, Dr. Wall and Dr. Henny has set up in Chicago, he was training brewers how to be brewers. And to your question, you know, he also had a uh, a journal called Letters in Brewing, and that was published in English. And in it, uh, he had a a section where he al- asked your brewers were allowed to ask him questions, and he gave answers. And this is the the the, the gist of it. The, the questionnaire, who's anonymous, I don't know who um, the person was, asked him, is it possible for a small brewer um, to make an impact in the United States? Um, and when I first read that, I went, well, a small brewer sounds like craft. And it's his reply. You know, he, he, he went on to say in his answer, I believe if you make a good beer of different flavors, of different variety, that a good beer always finds a consumer. And uh, he went on, not just that, he went on to say beer today is of too general of the same nature. Because that light lager, by the 1890s, 95% of the beer in the United States was essentially a light lager beer. Everything else had been driven out of the marketplace, uh, much like craft, kind of a reverse of what craft's doing today in terms of uh, chipping away at the, uh, the the popular style that had been has been our style for so long. Uh, back then, you know, Hanke recognized that, uh, and he went on to say, uh, it, it, the beers of Chicago, Philadelphia, uh, New York are virtually indistinguishable. They use the same materials. They're, and even when he got so specific as to say their, their breweries are designed to deliver just one style of beer. I mean, it was just like, wow, I'm reading this is like 1899. Very I, smart guy. <laughs> smart. That was a visionary, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, can, and can I share another visionary? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. This time it's, and this is related to the second article. And uh, you'll probably recognize this gentleman uh, to this same question. And his name uh, was uh, Professor Dr. Wilhelm Windisch. You know him? No, I don't. He was the guy that founded VLB. Oh, I, okay. Yeah, that's yeah, why. That's probably I, my pronunciation. All right, all right. I, I no, no, no. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Say his name, by the way. Wilhelm Windisch. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, on August 27th, uh, 1912, uh, he arrived in the United States uh, as the invited guest note uh, speaker or the keynote speaker for the United States uh, Brewer Association meeting in, in uh, Boston that year. And before leaving New York, uh, he was interviewed by a reporter from the New York Journal of Commerce. And if you consider the time, this was right in the, you know, right in the denouement, the, the peak of the end of this long period of the federal government to impose a, an American Ryan Heitzkebot. Um, the reporter asked him about his opinions regarding two things. One, American efforts to impose a American Ryan Heitzkebot. And um, 
uh, Germany's recent passage, because in 1906, June 3rd, 1906, the national uh, Ryan High School vote was um, um, passed to have the rest of Germany join Bavaria uh, uh, with their 1516 legislation. So all of Germany only became uh, Ryan High School vote uh, uh, ruled uh, in until it took 1906 for that to happen. So I'm, I'm well, I can't say with certainty. I'm pretty sure there were. Porter expected uh, Vintage to, you know, uh, tout the merits of all malt beer, right? That would have been my expectation. But uh, in the second article, I quote uh, Vintage's uh, statements to this reporter. And he said two things. Well, regarding our efforts, he said, you're crazy. Don't do it. Essentially, not those words, but you'll read his words. But it's what he said uh, with regards to Germany's passage of the legislation, because he was you know, Berlin-based, he was literally could have walked to the Reichstag that day on June 3rd, 1906. And uh, he said it, uh, it was a measure, a law passed uh, because of the efforts of the uh, barley growers and molsters of Germany, um, and that it was not something that was driven uh, from a food safety, food quality, or purity. But then he said, and this is the part that long-winded, but it gets back to your original question, he says... He did not like it because it prevents brewers from producing beers of different flavors and styles, which is craft, right? Right. Uh, anyway, so here, here you got this voice from the past, and um, I try as much as I possibly can in my writings to give the voices of these people from the past uh, their hearing, their due, uh, not to paraphrase, not to you know say Greg Casey's twist on what they're tr- we're trying to say, but to give their actual words for the readers to uh, read themselves and. I remember, remember those moments I said, like, wow, that was another wow moment when you got, you know, the head of um, VLB in Berlin ripping a strip off a reporter in New York City in 1912 because he, he thought the only real beer was all malt lager beer. Coming up. The numbers were pretty clear. All malt lager just was not the desired form of lager for the American beer drinker of that time. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Brewery Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to Fermentis is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to home brewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch Fermentis yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentis can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentis.com. 
As you might imagine, there still aren't any opportunities to gather in person for district meetings, but that doesn't slow us down. After all, Master Brewers, which was formed in 1887, has survived more than one pandemic. Spring and summer have brought us numerous webinars and virtual district meetings, many of which can be replayed on demand. Here are just a few of them. Creating a safe environment for brewery tours, June 9th. Compliance testing for state-level cannabis markets, June 23rd. The Connected Brewer leveraging real-time fermentation monitoring to elevate product quality and operational efficiency July 14th. You've heard me talking about the 2020 World Brewing Congress for several months now. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite industry conference. I've been looking forward to it since the 2016 WBC ended. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we won't be able to gather in Minneapolis as planned. As much as that stinks, there is a pretty serious silver lining. WBC 2020 is going fully virtual, which means you can access the world's most cutting edge research in brewing science and technology easily and affordably from the comfort of your own home. Registration for WBC Connect opens soon with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details or check the direct link in the show notes. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. back to the show. You talk about how um, you talk about how one of the most significant documents ever written in the history of the American brewing industry consisted of three essays. Tell us about those. Yeah, they were prepared by the United States Brewers Association in, as part of their defense of the of uh, the then the federal government's uh, interest in imposing a, an American Ryan Heights boat. Uh, so it was, it was offered by them. It was available to the public. Uh, it helped the three individuals um, that were asked to testify in front of the Senate hearings, the William Miles, who was an ale brewer in New York City and, and president that year, by the way, of the United States Brewers Association, Anton Schwartz, the gentleman who um, rightfully so is uh, universally referred to as the father of adjunct lager beer in the United States of America, and Dr. Francis Wyatt, Francis Wyatt, a Brit. You know, he was a chemist, came over here from the uh, United Kingdom and became uh, a very well-known uh, spokesperson for the industry, set up his own brewing school in New York City, like the Siebels and, and Walls of uh, Chicago. So this, the, they drafted the arguments that they were uh, preparing to use um, in their Senate hearings. And if you read those, and you can get it online, I encourage you, John, just, you know, that's uh, the other thing with Google Books. I mean, it's the beauty of this. It, it all predates, um, you know, it's all, these are all considered public domain. Uh, they're all available online through Library Congress, digital libraries, uh, Google Books. You can read the whole thing. It's not that long. It's only like, I think, 30, 40 pages. But there's, there's those three 
series of essays written by three very prominent people that just lay it all out there and, and not in abstract technical terms, you know, in terms of extract and chill haze. And, you know, they just talk about it in human terms and consumer terms about what the use of um, the prominent use of uh, corn and rice allowed them to do and how what they did aligned with what their experiences was telling them uh, the American consumer wanted. So, um, there, it, to me, it's it's um, you know, kind of, almost kind of akin to a manifesto in a way. You know, the industry just putting a stake in the ground, putting it in writing. This is why we use what we do and what it means to the beer that you drink every day in the United States of America. So I, that's why I place such uh, significance to it. Okay. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to ask this, but I kind of want to capture uh, where you wrote about how um – how from the 1870s onward, these decisions were entirely informed decisions because the Brewers of America were overwhelmingly incredibly transparent, open, and proactive and passionate about explaining to the American public why they employed malt substitutes. Uh, I don't really know what the question is, but I want you to talk about how the brewers did such a great job of explaining to the general public why they were using these malt substitutes. And, and, and So talk about that. Yeah, great question. A really, really profound question. Um, and, and if you go back, remember I referenced because transparency always wins, right? Well, you hope so. <laughs> it certainly did for the style. No pun intended. Um, you know, when you look uh, when Maureen Ogle, for example, and she wrote Ambitious Brew, uh, and I was reading some, you know, there was a you know, I went online to look at some of the social postings. Uh, some of the people grudgingly acknowledged, I don't know who they were, but they were like, you know, it's kind of like, they didn't like hearing that we had a long history of using corn and rice, right? Uh, and they said, yeah, but uh, the brewers of the time were secretive about it. They didn't let people know. There was kind of that kind of a general vein that was running through some of the social media postings at the time about her book. And what I mean by that is, and again, it's surprising to me, and it's uh, it will take this full series of writings and books to reveal the whole story, but it basically um, boils down to this. They were incredibly transparent because they took the, the bull by the horns and every opportunity they had in a state hearing, a city hearing, a federal hearing, anytime they had an opportunity to be interviewed by the press, anytime they had opportunities to write books, anytime they had an opportunity to be heard, they were very proactive in stating in very understandable terms why they use corn and rice. They didn't shy away from it. Um, there's uh, another document I consider uh, the American uh, Lager Beer Manifesto, the first one, um, and it was it was um, published on August 20th, 1881, and it was an article um, in the New York Times, you know, pretty prominent newspaper at the time, obviously on a national level, and the title of the article was simply this, How Lager Beer is Made. And the subheadline said, corn, rice, glucose, starch, you know, sugars used in the brewing of lager beer. This is 1881, right? And it described why they used it, why they used these materials. It described it in terms that the reader of the time would readily understand. And at the end of it were the signers. The signers put their name, the brewers who, who drafted that put their names to it. And at least half of them were born in Bavaria. So there's a certain irony in that, right? Um, in addition, other parts of Germany. And I consider it a manifesto because uh, it was dangerous to do at the time. I just referenced the hand of fraud and crooked brewers in the Milwaukee 19, 1877. Suddenly, four years later, it was pretty obvious by then, the American press didn't think much of the practice of, of using corn and rice. So it's their, um, the, the historical records are abundantly clear 
that uh, they were very visible. Uh, they, they showed up at all these hearings. They testified. They were doing at the behest and on behalf of our uh, American uh, brewing industry. They didn't shy away from uh, defending the right and explaining why. And that's that's a huge part of their legacy. So it, it was a big surprise to me. I had no idea, John, back in 2007, that this would have been a big debate in American society and that it was so pu- that it's so publicly played out um, on the public stage. The last big attempt um, was 1911 uh, by the federal government. Uh, you know, the very first use of the Smithsonian building, uh, even before it formally opened in Washington, D.C., was it was the beer hearings. It huh. was the, you know, trying to come up with standards. And again, all these parties were invited. There were so many people that had to show up that that's why they didn't use the Department of Agriculture for the hearings. They used the big halls of the Smithsonian. And wow. if, you, if you Google, you know, headlines from August 3rd, 1911, newspapers.com, um, many, 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 many examples from New York to San Francisco of the three in big caps, as big as what were used when we went to war with Spain in 1898. <laughs> what is beer? Question mark. What is what an amazing question, right? What is beer? Uh, and that's I mean, when I saw these, it was almost like it, it was it was one of those other like, holy smolies. What is beer? Smithsonian and these hearings. And, I mean, it's just uh, it's a long-winded, again, answer to your question about the transparency. That's as big a part of this story is, you know, and what is what drives past, what drives transparency? Passion, right? Belief, yeah. commitment, um, um, and 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 they just use the freedoms they didn't have in Germany, um, but because most of them were German Americans, they just they they loved. You could just feel how they loved the passion and the intoxication of being able to stand up in front of these uh, very powerful institutions and make their case. Um, as a naturalized citizen myself. I'm just I'm just flabbergasted and and uh, you know and amazed by their courage uh, to do that at a time when the media it's hard you know it's pretty hard to when because the papers represented 100 percent of the media at the time by and large uh, and they were universally uh, against uh, the practice so that transparency is a, is a marvelous and inspiring aspect of this story. You've talked about the the approach that they took you know in the in these essays and elsewhere to sort of explain why they were doing what they were doing but there was a there was a second part of the approach that was really important too and and that was to sort of be transparent about the motives uh of of you know who's behind this effort and yeah. talk about that yeah that i mean <laughs> that was that was really um you know and i i, I never knew before doing this research well first of all the whole story but even when i you know a couple years into it until i really got into the federal efforts I uh, didn't realize the extent to which the um, uh, brewers of raw, of the raw materials of the Rhine Heiske boat, the, the malten hops. There were two groups. I've, I've previously referenced um, the barley growers of America and the maltsters of uh, America, but also the surprisingly one of the first group, the earliest group that was against um, that wanted an American Rhine Heiske boat were the hop growers of Upper State, New York, uh, in as early as 1860s. Because uh, they felt that uh, substitutes were being used for hops, never been proven, never no, ver- you know, legitimate historical reference indicates that that was ever the case. That brewers were, you know, using what they were describing, you know, some of the things they described were toxic, clearly toxic chemicals, uh, as uh, cheaper alternatives to hops. But getting back to the uh, the malsters and the barley growers uh, in 1890, I mean, it was just wonderfully ironic and marvelous that these same lawyers that sent uh, letters to the malsters. 
um, didn't you know didn't realize that many of the maltsters were also brewers because they didn't have a it was quite common for many brewers to make their own malt at the time right uh, but also there were independent malting companies but um, when when the transcript of these letters were actually read into the congressional hearings uh, to the uh, form you know the formal proceedings it just laid it all out you know when you read that in the article that will agitate on your behalf uh, to get these laws passed. Um, you know, Miles, the president of the United States, gave his personal opinion. He used some pretty harsh terms to describe, uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 the motivations behind that. So um, it became and, and this sort of um, uh, this public uh, awareness uh, first came out in the 1890s that the Mulsters and Brewers, um, barley growers were behind it. It was kind of a secretive thing in the 1890s and the Brewers were the ones who revealed it. But by the time in 30 20, was it 1911, 1912, 21 years later, the barley growers, the bolsters, they were out of the closet. They were just saying in newspaper articles, this is why we want it. Um, rice, you know, if I was a rice grower in Louisiana or Arkansas and Texas, I'd take exception to this. But they said, we don't grow rice. In Amer- you know, rice isn't, a, you know, isn't an American thing. Um, so they had their self-vested interest and uh, they were quite um, blunt about getting this passed would help our industries, the barley growers, the mulsters. They didn't shy away from it by 1911, 1910. So this open fight, this fight between the two forces which was a little bit secretive in 1890. By the time we got around to the Smithsonian in 1911, uh, you know, I'll bet, you know, it was just completely transparent on both sides as to why they wanted to see each of their perspectives win the day. I can't help but think about how I would have felt if I had been a, a brewer living during this time to have no choice but to continue purchasing malt from the maltsters who probably supported these bills designed to outlaw adjunct brewing. That would have made my blood boil. Yeah, it would have. Yeah. In addition to the quenching, the quaffing of your personal passion or your, you know, your, 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 your big, your biggest moneymaker, you know, that jungle lager beer uh, that you know, they gave those statistics in the paper that uh, where the, you know, the, the, the federal government was saying 90 percent, 95 percent of the beer by like 1905 was adjunct beer, adjunct lager beer. I mean, those are huge numbers. And, you know, being told that uh, you can't make what has made you and your family rich. Because um, that's the other part. I mean, these guys are no different than most immigrants. You know, like me, they came down. They came in the United States heavily in debt. <laughs> you know, they didn't have a hell. You know, my PhD in postdoc years cost us a lot of money, but it was well worth. <laughs> but I was heavily in the debt. You know, and America provided the freedom to make themselves and their families um, wealthy for many of them, not all, but you know, so many of them that had nothing. Uh, 20, 30 years by their hard work sweat. Uh, and ironically, many of them, I'm sure, and I know many of them personally didn't like the style. You know, they, they're, I'm sure the beer they were drinking at home and in the beer stube in the brewery was an all malt beer that they made for themselves, um, largely. And, uh, but, you know, commerce is one thing. And America is, you know, it's like I referenced earlier, was capitalism on hormone at the time. So, yeah, they would have been pretty annoyed um, if, um, and that's, they, they realized the, repercussions and implications of that you know it could dry, it could have driven um uh lager beer from its status of national beverage to just another piece because the numbers were pretty clear all malt lager just was not the desired form of lager for the american beer drinker of that time so it could have really had a devastating impact on the industry as a whole and um you know set it back for god knows how long 
it's almost unbelievable that this 1890 assault uh, wasn't the end of all this. Um, but as as you've mentioned several times, you know, this went on and on uh, and, and didn't really kind of get put to rest until ni- the 1911-1912 um, final battle there. Uh, why, why did this uh, assault continue over such a long period of time? Ah, oh, good question. I, I, I think it's, it's partly because the sheer number of institutions of note that were against the style. If it was just one piece of society that thought it was a bad idea to make a lighter beer with corn and rice, it might have um, flared. Um, but it didn't. And I think to your question, it's because uh, virtually everybody but the brewers, ironically, and ultimately the American beer drinkers right by their purchasing decisions uh those were sort of two on one side of the ledger the brewers and their customers because they had the choice they had a clear choice they could have only bought all malt beer they wanted to at the time but there's purchasing decisions said heck i don't want that i want this uh so i think it's the sheer uh percentage of of the powers of the institutions of power in the united states that were represented in the forces against it um that it played out so long um, you know, I look at, you know, Germany's, you know, essentially, you know, the German, the June 3rd, from what I can tell, is basically an overnight, you know, one day, boom, done. Uh, this is it. We're, we're a National Ryan High School boat now. There was no forum for the, I don't think the Prussians were particularly interested in having the industry represented it or any special interests. Um, they just did it. And, um, but in here, I think it's because every, um, every one of these institutions I've referenced was against is why it played out for so long. And it, and the iron, and the beauty of is, as this played out from when it first started in those press reports in the 1870s, right up to 1912, despite the public, highly public assaults by every one of these institutions, what did adjunct lager beer continue to do? Just grow and grow and grow and grow. First here and then around the world, because, you know, our beer, uh, if you look at the, um, you know, the records in terms of uh, sales of, of beer from respective nature, nations, the all malt of Germany and the adjunct lager beer of America uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, 1910s, um, the, the, the incredible property of our beer to be crystal clear when ice cold, no matter if it was right off the brewery or it had been shipped on a ship around to the Pacific or it had gone to the heat of the Pacific Northwest or Southwest, when you put it in a glass, it was crystal clear. No other beer. And that was acknowledged by the Germans and Austrians, everybody else of that era. No other beer in the world could deliver that to a consumer. And it's why even uh, it start, we really started uh, in that, in those decades of the 19th century, to become the beer of the world, like it is today, you know, adjunct lager beer is the was easily the most dominant style of beer, one you know, dominating beer sales around the world. That journey started uh, for American beer, our beer, uh, back then. Okay, this is kind of a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, so, putting all of this history aside, in present day, if you put the best American adjunct lager up against the best European all malt lager made from two-row spring barley with low protein, or the best American all malt craft lager, which one wins today, and what are the differences? It's uh, a great question, but I'll answer your question with a statement. I think it's an impossible question to answer uh, because and I refer to remember what uh, Anton Vots uh, referenced what he said in 1890 uh, when he said the Gustavus non this is the, the, the Latin phrase yeah 
Yeah, non-institutatum. Well, one drinker prefers, the other may not, and vice versa. So that's the all. That's the question that will never be settled, nor should it be. Uh, it's the beauty of uh, different styles of beer that it can elicit such passion for each of the three uh, scenarios that you presented me, because it's all personal perspective as to what defines quality. Yeah, you know, we can measure quality having spent the last half of my career, you know, in leadership positions for, you know, quality assurance and quality systems. Every brewer, craft or micro or a German lager brewer can define quality by their specifications and attributes, the adherence, the ability of the their materials, process and people to deliver that beer to their consumers. That's one definition. But to the question you've asked, which wins, which is the better, which is uh, you know basically the preferred beer, that's an impossible question to answer for me because it just it depends so much on the on the uh, historical culture associated behind each beer. I can fully appreciate why uh, members of my generation say, "Hey, the answer to that question is the light American lager beer. That's the beer I want to have when I'm." Well, I used to be able to watch the Rockies play downtown, <laughs> you know, uh, and a German uh, Bavarian, uh, you know, B Bavarian in Munich would say, oh, it's obvious. It's an all malt lager beer or or a craft brewer would say, hey, it's uh, our our, um, you know, our versions that are based on the historical styles. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to uh, chicken out and say there isn't an answer to that. And, and that and I think that's a beautiful thing that um, we're, we're blessed with um, having such options as a consumer to have these, all three of these at the same time, rather than being told by our respective governments, you're only allowed to have one kind. And that's uh, kind of a point I make in my writings. That's great. That's a good answer to my silly question. What do you think, what do you think uh, would have happened if, if prohibition had somehow been avoided? We, we obviously missed out on a lot of years of potential advances in brewing science and technology, but what, what would have been the outcome? Would America have become the undisputed beer capital of the globe, you know, on this accelerated timeline? Would would the craft beer revolution have, have happened earlier? Take a guess at what that would have looked like. That's a, that's a wonderful question, John. I love that question. That's a great question because I I've had my thoughts on that, you know, and, and obviously, as you indicated, it's just pure speculation on my part uh, as to a what if, because the inherent nature of a what if question. But I here's what I believe. If, if we... Uh, had not done if prohibition had not uh, passed, uh, we still we by then uh, we we earned to protect the right to pr produce a adjunct lager beer. I think it still would have went on as it is today to be the dominant style, not just in the United States but around the world. Um, you know, I think so. I think that heritage would have been unaffected, or that legacy and that accomplishment as a style. But what I believe is remember I mentioned that uh, Ernst Hanke before. Yeah. Uh, I believe his his paradigm that uh, you know how can a small brewer succeed in a world dominated by these big brewers? Uh, that's a story that resonates with the craft, and, and I believe if we didn't have prohibition, but more importantly, even more importantly, I believe the um, the devastation of the Depression era of the global conflict known as World War II that, you know, killed 60, you know, 60 million people. If America wasn't preoccupied with some incredible, like we are today, with, with some incredible uh, national crises, um, that a craft movement would have flourished in the 20s and 30s, perhaps. Um, that it would have, that this journey that the craft started in American brewing, brewing as a whole wouldn't have taken till the 18, or pardon me, the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s to take off. But I believe it would have happened 
back in um, back in as long ago as the 1920s and 30s. Because if you think about it, we that style the um, the lighter adjunct lager beer, and I'm not saying it's identical to a Coors Light or a Bud Light today, but relatively speaking, it was lighter compared to all malt. Uh, and uh, that it uh, we'd already had three four decades of it being the beer of the land. I think we would have got fatigued uh, with it if consumers were offered alternative styles like the craft brewer has been doing these last 20, 30 years. So, uh, you know, I think that's, I think that might've realistically played out, but it didn't. History was, is history. You can't change it. We had those traumatic events. Uh, we had a, um, a unique situation where a generation, first generation growing up drinking beer, um, they were wearing a uniform of the United States Armed Forces of one kind or another, and they were drinking light lager beer as their first beer. Um, and that, so that was the start of their journey. And that's the only beer they knew. And uh, rightfully so, when they you know, did what they did as the greatest generation, um, when they came back here after the war and in the decades that followed, uh, they, they made their beer only the light lager beer of, of the brands that we reckon many that we recognize today. So yeah, it's a cool question. Um, and I think it's, if you get, if you get asked 10 people, um, you get 10 different replies on that because that's the beauty of what if questions. That's right. Okay. Well, it feels a little weird talking to someone of your caliber about history instead of technical brewing. Um, when you look at this, like, you know, uh, percentage of adjunct that's used in these beers and I'm, I'm sure, you know, Brewers of, of that day and beyond tinkered with the various combinations of, of adjunct, which types of adjunct and how much to use. Had, talk about sort of that that sweet spot. And, um, and, and from your experience as a brewer, you know, um, what does it what's what's the perfect what's the ideal amount of, of adjunct and, and, and what do different types of adjunct achieve for you in these beers? Yeah, that's, I mean, there's, you know, I look back at my own career um, with Stroh, for example, uh, many of the brands we made were 45% malt. <laughs> yeah. Not adjuncts, you know, 55%. I mean, and that's why, ironically, you, you, we were crazy about making sure we had only six roll varieties of barley barley malt because we needed the, for the yeast nutrition. Uh, we diluted out so much of the uh you know, the, the uh, free amino nitrogens that the yeast required, we had to use only six row, which is kind of like a 180, right, from back then in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, but it was, you know, the brewers clearly did, you know, new product development, what concept, uh, you know, feasibility, development, implementation, you know, back in those early stages of doing test brews and pilot brews and maybe a brew for the public to take a gantry with. I mean, they were clearly tinkering um, back in the 1860s, 1870s with what is that sweet spot you refer to. Um, and it, it is kind of surprising to me that it really is, uh, did kind of settle around that, uh, I'd say the 30, 40% of the extract coming from um, malt substitutes. And that seemed to be a good compromise. Um, you know, when I, when I look back at, um, and this is what I talked about in the second article, um, the one thing the German Reichstag was good at was statistics in terms of um, annual statistics for the materials used in uh, the uh, northern Germany, at least not Bavaria, um, to brew lager beer. And I'd say it's fair to say, on average, when you look at those numbers in the 1870s, 1890s, and right up to 1906 in Germany, that the rates of adjuncts used in the United States for lager brewing were 5, 10, 20 times higher. Uh, than they were in Germany. Um, so that in Germany, I'm assuming, um, 
that they didn't have the same need, those German brewers, for a beer that was crystal clear when ice cold. Uh, but it did give it a lighter beer, a beer of a different flavor um, that uh, was was justified enough to have it as part of their portfolio um, that was legally and commercially available to consumers in Germany. So that 30, 40 percent was just enough uh, without knowing the science necessarily uh, to be able to meet those criteria beyond that. Yeah, it diluted, as as we can imagine from a technical perspective, uh, made the beer perhaps too light in color, made it perhaps too uh, light in flavor for the preferences of the time. But it just hit that sweet spot of being unique enough uh, to be an easier to quaff, a, a light, you know, a higher drinkability beer uh, than an all malt beer at the time. So yeah, you know that was um, that w- that would have been an exciting time. Uh, it even the earliest, uh, you know, when the first patents. Um, to who and when and the first patents on the use of corn was in the United States, John? I don't know. It wasn't, <clears throat> surprised me, it wasn't Anton Schwartz, the father, right? You think it was him that would have gotten the patents. <clears throat> but it was a, a, a Hungarian and a Bavarian uh, who got the first patents in the 1860s on brewing lager beer with corn. And that blew me away. Yeah, I was like, And a guy, you ever heard of the name Nicholas Bowman? I sure as heck didn't. No. He was a, he was born in Bavaria and he settled in Kalamazoo, Michigan, of all places. Uh, and he was issued a patent in 1869 uh, on the use of um, corn, and he gave various recipes combinations um, for the uh, the use of the adjuncts. Uh, and he also included what I it's almost an emotionally stunning image of the earliest generation or earliest depiction of an American uh, double mash uh, process. It, it wooden vessels, but it, there's no doubt what it is. It's, it's our, it's not the cocktail, it's not infusion. It's, you know, it's a double mash system. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's just a gorgeous piece of our history. But even before he did that, during the early days of the civil war, a Hungarian was given 1862. Uh, name is uh, Hacker, uh, Ludwig Hacker from Altenburg, Hungary. Uh, he was granted a patent for the use of corn, and he flat out said 40%. You know, hmm. make your lager with 40% uh, uh, corn and 60% malt. And he actually spent time uh, in the United States. Schwartz, in his one of his publications, indicated that uh, this Hacker came over to the United States before he passed in 1877 uh, to do with. Uh, uh, brewers who I haven't identified yet um, in terms of uh, collaborating on test brews with uh, corn in the United States. And that might have been, you know, he might have been the first, he might have been responsible for the first ever brewings of, uh, of uh, adjunct lager beer in the United States from that visit. And perhaps it was that 40% that he, uh, he referenced. We've talked on the show. We have we've had Joe Hertrick on the show a lot, and he's talked about sort of the 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 six rowification of North American two row barley. I'm wondering. Um, I'm sure someone has done this, um, but I'm wondering if you know anything about what happens when adjuncts are used in combination with the, sort of the the lower protein European style two row barley varieties. Is there any good outcome from that, or is is that just a waste of time? Well, it kind of gets back to, you know, the non, you know, disputantum. I'm sure a, a combination of adjuncts with uh, two-row, you probably just from a yeast nutritional perspective need to have a higher uh, quantity of the uh, two-row, which in turn would drive the color to be darker, which would give you more body typically. And so it'd be a, a different tasting beer 
Um, you know, it might be some for consideration by a craft brewer, you know, but, you know, despite the anathema of, um, you know, in some, I'm delighted to see examples of craft brewers are, are you know, are being pretty passionate uh, about exploring some of our heritage, including corn. So I think it, it would yield uh, certainly a different beer uh, in, in readily recognizable attributes to, a cons- to an average consumer. Um, so it would be a category to explore, but yeah, it would directionally shift things for sure. That was Greg Casey here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a direct link to Greg's TQ article and be on the lookout for his book, which you'll find in the Master Brewers bookstore later this year. You've heard me talking about the 2020 World Brewing Congress for several months now. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite industry conference. I've been looking forward to it since the 2016 WBC ended. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we won't be able to gather in Minneapolis as planned. As much as that stinks, there is a pretty serious silver lining. WBC 2020 is going fully virtual, which means you can access the world's most cutting-edge research in brewing science and technology easily and affordably from the comfort of your own home. Registration for WBC Connect opens soon with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details or check the direct link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Fermentis. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. (laughs) 